0: Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Song of Songs, as we're calling it. Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, is where we left off last week. So we're going to pick up there in verse 2, and we're going to look at all the way through chapter 6, verse 3 tonight. And um, as we begin, I just want to say that uh, this coming May... Nineteenth, Kelly and I will have been married for 24 years, and um, super excited about that, very grateful for the wife that God has provided me, the wife of my youth, as uh, she's described in Proverbs, right? And uh, throughout the years that we've been married, we've made many memories together, including uh, blissful moments of intimacy that we'll never forget, as well as some hurtful moments of of hostility that we'd rather forget. And one of those conflicts or fights or discussions happened at, of all places, a weekend marriage seminar. That's not where you're supposed to have a fight, right? That's where you're supposed to work through your issues and, like, kind of be in one of those blissful moments in your marriage, right? Right? Well, we went down to this um, this seminar called uh, in Galveston called a weekend to remember. That was the name of the the the, the seminar, a weekend to remember. And we affectionately refer to it as today as the as the weekend to forget. Um, we jokingly <laughs> call it that. Um, but as I recall, it was a Saturday afternoon, and they dismissed us as couples for a time to talk together privately about. What we've been learning over the course of the weekend, and because it was Saturday afternoon, I had PMS. See, wives get PMS at least once a month. Preachers get it every Saturday. PMS is preaching mode syndrome. And so I get into this, I get this glazed over look somewhere around two or three in the afternoon where I can't think about anything else, but I got to preach tomorrow. And uh, I'm not too fun to be around, and uh, Kelly's learned that over the years. that I just need to get away and, and, and focus. And, and so this was not the best timing uh, because we were supposed to be talking about our marriage and I was thinking about a sermon and uh, we'd already agreed ahead of time that because I had to go home and, and um, you know, preach the next day that we weren't going to be able to stay to the, for the entire conference. It was supposed to go through Saturday night and Sunday and, and, and all that. But uh, I had said, hey, I'll, I'll take you to this thing, but uh, we can't stay the whole time. Maybe that was my first mistake. I don't know. But um, and anyway, we ended up get, getting into this major argument about how our marriage always takes the backseat to ministry. I mean, you could see that was a major setup. I mean, I was like lobbing that sucker up. You know, this is, this is, a, this is a classic example of what I'm talking about, right? Um, I, I really did set myself up big time for that one. So we packed our stuff. We got in the car and headed home. And let's just say it was the longest ride home from Galveston that we've ever had in our lives. And it started with a a flurry of angry words, and it took everything within me not to whip the marriage manual that we've been working through that whole weekend out the window. To my shame, it did end up hitting the back window of the car. I do remember that. And uh, after that happened, um, the majority of the ride was spent in silence as we both sulked and licked the wounds that we had inflicted on one another. And thankfully, by God's grace, we were able to work through, through our differences and, and be reconciled. And uh, believe it or not, our marriage is better and stronger today as a result of that fight and the many other discussions <laughs> we've had uh, over the course of almost 24 years of marriage. And uh, when we first got married, I used to joke with Kelly that, that, uh, that she had turned me into a monster. Because before I got married, I, I, thought, I thought I was a mature, godly man. Um, I had control of my anger. Uh, I was humble. Uh, I was patient. I was a servant, always thinking about others more important than myself, never got angry with others, and never raised my voice with other people, rarely had any conflict with any other human being on this planet. But six months into our marriage, I was like, what in the world has happened to me? All this sin started coming out in my life, and and my natural tendency was to blame, guess who? Kelly. Lord, it's this wife you gave me, right? Right? You ever heard that before, right? Genesis chapter 3. And uh, so it, in, in my mind, it was all her fault because I didn't struggle with any of this until I got married, right? So the only thing that changed was she was in my life now. We were married, so it surely couldn't have been my fault. But over the years, I've learned that God uses marriage, marriage to bring out the sin in our lives so we can deal with it. Have you figured that out yet? Nothing has caused me to grow more in my relationship with God than my relationship with Kelly. I would think that all of you spouses could say the same thing. Nothing has caused you to grow more in your relationship with God than your relationship with your spouse. And I think Kelly would agree with me that our marriage has been and continues to be the most effective tool in God's hands to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus, I love uh, the title of a book that came out a few years ago. It's called, When Sinners Say I Do. I mean, you just fill in the blank, right? That's a great book, just by the title, When Sinners Say I Do. And if you didn't know it before you got married, it doesn't take very long into your marriage to realize that you are living in the house, in the same house, as a wretched sinner. And, uh, and you thought you were the worst sinner you knew, right? Right? Until you met your spouse, right? And so no one on this planet knows how sinful I am more than my sinful wife. How's that? You like that? <laughs> Just kidding. And yet, listen to this no one loves me more than she does. What's up with that? No one knows how sinful I am as much as Kelly, but no one loves me as much as Kelly. And guess what, no one loves her as much as me. And no one knows how sinful she is as much as me. And so the question is, why is it that we hurt the ones that we, what, love the most? Y- you know that's true, don't you? We hurt the ones that we love the most. How is it that we can get so sideways with our best friend on Earth? How, how is that possible? What, what causes married couples to experience such extremes? How you can go from making passionate love at one moment and to hating each other with a passion the next. And vice versa. Hating each other with a passion to making passionate love. Well, let me encourage you tonight that whatever you're dealing with in your marriage, no temptation or trial has overtaken you but that which is common to man. You're not the only couple that's going through whatever you're going through. I guarantee it. I don't care what you would, what you would share, what you would explain, what you, what you would reveal. Uh, there is somebody else on this planet, right, who's going through a similar trial or temptation as you are. And God's faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able. In other words, never put more on you than you can handle, but with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of a escape so you can, what, endure it. Not get divorced, right? but to endure it. And so as we continue in our study tonight of the Song of Songs, we're going to see that married life involves both extremes. Ups and downs, hills and valleys, joys and sorrows, blessings and challenges. And if you have that outline in front of you, there's, they're on the back table if you want to grab one. But we broke, we've broken up this uh, Song into four sections. We've seen the courtship, chapters one, chapter one through three, five, where true love is awakened. We see last week, we looked at the consummation, uh, how true love was united. And then tonight, we move into this next section. We're just calling conflict, where true love is tested. Chapter five verse two, all the way through chapter seven, verse 10. And so far in our study, we've witnessed this couple passionately pursuing one another in a dating, courting relationship with great anticipation of their wedding day. And and last week, we had the privilege of being a guest at not only the celebration of their marriage, but also the consummation of their marriage in the white spaces, right, of Scripture, which we're so thankful for. And tonight, we get a front row seat to watch their first fight. Ding, 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 in this corner is, <laughs> and in this corner is, right? Solomon in this corner, the Shulamite in this corner. And they come out swinging. And, and, and we're going to see here as we begin to read on that the mood has, has quickly and dramatically changes from blissful to spiteful. And the scene shifts from the ecstasy of the honeymoon suite to the reality of everyday married life. We've heard it said before, right? The honeymoon is over, right? The honeymoon is over. Um, Now, that's not to say that the joy and the intimacy that this couple shared on their wedding night has faded away, as is so often the case in marriage. There's no indication of that. In fact, we're going to see this thing heat up before we're done. That's not the point, but that doesn't mean that they didn't encounter problems and challenges along the way that were hurtful to one another and potentially harmful to their relationship. And if not, and if they weren't resolved in a biblical God-honoring way, this could pose a problem, a threat to their marriage. And so one of the things I appreciate so much about the Song of Songs is it, is it paints a realistic view of true love. We're, we're talking about a, a celebration of true love. And, um, I mean, when you, when, when you truly love someone, that doesn't mean you never argue or fight. Can we just all breathe a sigh of relief? Oh, God, that, that sounds good. <laughs> I needed to hear that, right? Just because you truly love someone doesn't mean you never argue or fight. This is a celebration of what? True love. And uh, I think sometimes we have an idealistic view of love, right? Right? Um, at least we picked it up from the Hollywood movies and you know, the love songs that we sing and, or listen to on the radio, and, and, it's, and it's all this blissful thing. But it's inevitable that conflict and friction and tension occurs even in the best marriages. And I think it would be very easy if this section was not in the Song of Songs, it would be easy to view Solomon and the Shulamite as the ideal couple with the ideal marriage. Right up to this point, you're like, wow, man, I wish I had a marriage like that. And so lest we get the false impression, or a false impression of marriage, the Spirit of God infused this idealistic marriage with a dose of realism. And under the direction of God's Spirit, Solomon wisely shared how shortly after he and, and the love of his life got married, they, they experienced the first signs of friction and tension. They, they had a, a marital spat, as we call it. They hit a bump in the road. And like every other married couple, they got sideways with one another and endured a a painful, stressful time of separation, but were eventually able to work out their differences and, and we get to see them kiss and make up, and more than just kiss and make up. Now, one of the obvious reasons why husbands and wives fight, why they get into arguments, is because of the God-ordained differences between men and women. And, uh, I mean, I could sit here, I've, got, I've read so many different things about the differences between men and women, right? We've all heard those, we chuckle at that, we laugh at that. In fact, I think God gets a kick out of watching us sometimes as husbands and wife try to get along in marriage. I mean, you, in some ways you think, well, that was a cruel trick, right? Putting a, a guy and a, and a gal under the same roof together. I mean, there couldn't be two more opposite creatures, right, than than a man and a woman. And yet God ordained that that's how he wanted marriage to work. And so while he probably gets a lot of laughs watching us try to get along in marriage, I think he also sheds many tears and is greatly grieved when couples don't get along in marriage and quit trying. So couples, we know, fight about a lot of things. Um, roles and responsibilities, who does what, when, where, how they spend their money. That's a common source of tension, right, is money in, in a marriage. How to deal with your children right, how to discipline them, how to address a certain issue. And sometimes you get sideways when you're trying to deal with the frustrations of, of child rearing and uh, how to relate to the in-laws. Man, that's, that can be fun sometimes, right? How in the world do you relate? Who? Where do we go for Christmas? Where do we go for Thanksgiving? And, and those things can end up in like World War III's, right? Um, and I would say also couples often fight um, and are frustra- have frustrations Related to sexual intimacy, um, survey says, what do couples fight about, right? That, that would have to be in at least the top five. And uh, I think when it comes to sex, oftentimes the conflict is based on the fact that opposite sexes have opposite views about sex. Uh, men and women don't approach sex in the same way. You've heard the classic analogy, men are like microwaves and women are like crockpots. You get the analogy, right? Microwave, you, know, you hit the button, boom, it's on, it's ready to go, right? Done. <laughs> uh, Crockpots kind of have to simmer all day, right? To kind of get up to speed, and, 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 that's just, and then they take a while to, to, to cool down afterwards. That's just, I think, a good analogy of, of just a basic difference between men and women in, in, in regards to sex. I read an article about this uh, co- potential conflict, some of the frustrations um, between Mister All the Time versus Mrs. Occasionally, Mrs. Planned Patty versus Spontaneous Sam, Daytime Dave versus Nighttime Natalie, Hurry Up Harry versus Slow Down Denise. I like the Darkness Diane versus I love the Light Larry, or One Track Mind Michael or Distracted Donna. Right? I mean, you got these those, those those titles that kind of bring out some of the tensions and friction that takes place uh, in in regards to sexual intimacy with a, with a husband and wife. Now, again, I've already mentioned this um, either last week or the week before, that most marital problems don't begin in the bedroom. In other words, the, the root problem, it really doesn't have anything to do with, with sexual intimacy, right? That's more of a symptom of a deeper problem. But a lot of marital problems end up in the bedroom. In other words, they show up there. Because um, the, really, the bedroom is just kind of a, reveals uh, how things are going in your relationship. We talked about the difference between a thermostat, which sets the temperature, right? And a thermometer, which records the temperature. And sexual intimacy is not a thermostat. It's a thermometer. And it simply records the temperature in your home. And so, really, there's no area in marriage that requires more selflessness, more self-denial than the area of sexual intimacy. I think 1 Corinthians 7 is a, a very important passage of Scripture that, that uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with. You may want to turn there if it's not familiar to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul uh, launches into this uh, very beautiful and powerful instruction about marriage. And he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So obviously what Paul is instructing the Corinthians here and us is that we, were to, we are to selflessly serve one another in the area of sexual intimacy. That is what God calls uh, men and women to do, husbands and wives to do. And the reason why I read that passage and just to remind you of that passage is because it appears that this couple's conflict back in the, in the Song of Songs uh, may have been caused by a violation of this biblical principle in 1 Corinthians 7, which I would venture to say is one of the most common problems that married couples face, um, It's something that's not often talked about and discussed, but that really, when it comes down to it, that could be the issue, is what's going on, how well are you doing at living out 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. And so back in the Song of Songs, one commentator uh, chose to title this section, A Bad Night in the Bedroom. (laughs) It's very specific. What is the the conflict surrounding? What what is the conflict about? Um, Well, let's read it. Verses 2 through 6, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice my beloved was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. I have taken off my dress, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet, how can I dirty them again? My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone." My heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called, but he did not answer me. Now commentators uh, disagree whether or not she was literally dreaming. Uh, Some say this is a dream sequence, uh, very similar to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Talks about the similar thing, that she was looking for her lover, and she went out into the street, into the city to find him, and then she found him. Uh, the difference here is that she goes out into the streets to look for him, and she can't find him. And, uh, and so what's going on here? Well, if we can apply some sanctified imagination here, um, one commentator suggested the following possible scenario that uh, you and I both know has been played out in multiple marriages on countless occasions. Here's a couple, okay, Solomon and the Shulamite, had either mutually scheduled a rendezvous uh, for this evening or maybe the wife was wanting to surprise her husband with a time of intimacy when he got home from a hard day's work or, uh, or maybe from a long business trip and so she got all cleaned up and she put on some perfume and she slipped into some lingerie and was lying in bed waiting for him to come, but he never did. So she gave up. She got sleepy. Maybe she got frustrated, she blew out the candles, put the cap back on the bottle of myrrh, changed back into her PJs, locked the door, and went to sleep. Danny Akin writes this, he says, on this particular evening, work won out over the wife, and the stage was set for a confrontation, a showdown in the bedroom. Pretty common scenario. And so just when she's dozing off to sleep, guess who comes home? The happy husband, right? He finally gets home. He's been looking forward to being with his wife all day or all week, depending on right, if it was just coming home from work or coming off a business trip. But he finds the bedroom door locked, which should have been a subtle hint. Hey, buddy, I'm not interested. You lost your chance. You're in the doghouse. And yet. Notice he he tries to initiate a time of intimacy by using romantic words. He says, a voice, my beloved was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks with the damp of the night. And yet his words, which worked in the past, right? He He was good at romancing her, wasn't he? I mean, we've seen that. I mean, he, he, she loved the things that, that, that he said to her, and, and it typically turned her on. But his words this time were met with a cool response, and she says, I've taken off my dress, how can I put it on again? I've washed my feet, how can I dirty them again? So she's no longer in the mood, and she's responding here kind of in a groggy, kind of in a, in a daze here, kind of half asleep, and, and she basically implies how inconvenient it is to have to get out of bed after she's all clean and cozy and, and, and probably more the issue might be that she was resentful of how inconsiderate he was to not communicate with her. Why didn't you call? Well, because phones weren't invented yet, honey, right? I don't care, you still should have called, right? <laughs> you, you can sleep outside for all I care. It's, that's what you get for coming home so late, too bad, so sad, good night. And Gledhill, one of the commentaries I've enjoyed reading, he says this, that she is deliberately withdrawing her affection, perhaps as a punishment for some supposed slight or lack of appreciation. Now that never happens in your home, Right? He says, in everyday relationships, it may be an eloquent signal that something is wrong. We may not feel able to articulate our complaint or sense of grievance with our partner, so we withdraw, hoping to provoke a reaction. It's called the silent treatment, right? How often have we employed that in our marriages, right, to get a reaction out of our spouse? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it may backfire. But it is hardly a solid foundation for building an enduring relationship. The verbal articulation, however painful, however much courage it takes, is in the end much more productive than mute withdrawal. In other words, a silent treatment is really not the way to go. And so the question is, who's, who's to blame here for this conflict? Again, we're reading between the lines. I get that, right? But, but who's, who's to blame? Who's to blame? Based on this scenario that we've kind of created here, um, which I don't think is too far off, well, I think it was either the, the husband's, what one man called sweet-talking insensitivity or the wife's sleepy selfishness or a combination of both. O'Donnell, again, again, I like reading this guy. He's very, very helpful. He said, quote, instead of treading on holy ground, asking to enter the garden temple with respect and reverence, this guy thinks he's at, at the Burger King drive through window. <laughs> he wants it his way right away. He's inconsiderate. He's demanding. He's foolish. He's selfish. But, he goes on, she's selfish too. It's inconvenient. She's too tired and thus unenthusiastic. So we could suggest here that they were really both just thinking about themselves. Isn't that typically how, how it works out? You're, you're really both thinking about yourselves. Um, he was thinking about what he wanted, and she was thinking about what she wanted or didn't want. And uh, she was indifferent and apathetic to her husband's desires. She made these lame, selfish excuses to put them off like... I have a headache, dear, right? The classic, I have a headache excuse, right? Um, Well, do you guys know what the number one cause of marital conflict is? If you had to guess, what is the number one reason why couples get sideways with one another? One word. Selfishness. Selfishness. And maybe you could add pride, right? That's why I think the best marriage counsel in the Bible is Philippians 2, 3, and 4. You guys know what it says? Every married couple has got to have this passage memorized because you've got to use it like every day, every hour, every minute. Do nothing out of what? Selfishness or empty conceit or pride, but with humility of mind consider others more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. So how about this? Do nothing out of selfishness or pride, but with humility of mind consider your wife or your husband more important than yourself do not merely look out for your own interests but look out for the interests of your husband look out for the interests of your wife And so there was selfishness I'm sure that dynamic was was in play but there's also another dynamic that is almost like we don't talk about it enough but it's it's really simple but it's profound they both had broken expectations, right? We know selfishness is, is in play, but, but they also had broken expectations. Another a, a book that recently came out that I'd encourage you to consider buying and reading as a couple, it's called, What Did You Expect? <laughs> what Did You Expect? Subtitled, Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. I mean, what did you expect? You're marrying a sinner. <laughs> did you think it was going to be problem-free? right? Uh, That's by Paul Tripp, by the way. What did you expect? And then notice it says, my beloved, verse four, extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were aroused for him. And so he apparently is making one last attempt to open the door here and notice that she has a change of heart and stops thinking of herself and starts thinking of him and she gets up, right? She says, my feelings were aroused for him. I arose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and had gone. And my heart went out to him as he spoke. I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer me. Now commentators, again, want to argue whether or not this was a literal door or a metaphorical door. That uh, the hand going through a small opening is an easy target, obviously, for double entendres here. And again, I love what Gledhill says here, um, just about how we should interpret, uh, carefully interpret the, the Song of Songs. He says, perhaps it should be mentioned that many commentators have seen in this passage a number of double entendres of sexual innuendos. The problem about this is that once we begin to see them, we start looking for more hidden meanings until we see them everywhere. For once the point is mentioned, we become disoriented and lose track of the main theme of the poem, and we become sidetracked down a blind alley which gets us nowhere. It puts an explicit genital focus on the whole of the song, which is just not there. For the song is a celebration of love, beauty, and mutual devotion, which does also include a physical sexual element. However, we must not allow uh, that element to take over our interpretation of the song. If we start looking for references to intercourse and in private parts everywhere, we lose track of the main theme of the song and begin to sink into a quagmire of eroticism. Isn't that good, isn't that? Really good the way he's thought that through. Having read that, um, commentators do agree that myrrh, this, this myrrh reference here, her hand dripping with myrrh, myrrh being on the, on the, the, the door um, um, handle. Uh, is often associated with lovemaking and perhaps he had put that liquid on the door handle as a token of his affection before he left or maybe she had quickly opened up the bottle again and, 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 and applied some to herself before, uh, in preparation to welcoming him in, in, back home. Um, but the point is, notice, she, she felt bad that she had run him off. And so she goes out to look for him at the worst possible time, right, in the middle of the night, which, which young ladies, right, didn't go out in the dead of night, or they might be mistaken for what? A prostitute. And apparently that's what happened here. The watchman, it says, verse 7, the watchman who, who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. And so... They beat her and stripped her half naked to expose her shame. Now, some would suggest that that really doesn't fit with the interpretation of this, of this song because, you know, are we really to believe uh, that or to assume that the new queen, right? This is, we're talking, this is the queen married to King Solomon. She's the queen and she would have been mistaken or mistreated in this, in this way. And so they suggest that this scene really was more symbolic of how ashamed that she was for how she had responded to, to her husband and, and had made herself available to him. So it, it may have been some suggest that she was kind of beating herself up. This is symbolic here, potentially. That she knew she was to blame, partly to blame, for the separation and the loneliness that they were experiencing as a couple. At the same time, I will be quick to say that maybe the husband stormed off mad, It's not like that hasn't happened before. Or rolled over in bed in another scenario with bitterness in his heart. But notice, again, here how badly she's feeling about this. And I think this is a good example for us as husbands and wives to not be so quick to confront our spouses when they're uh, sinning in their responses. Like we're the ones that are going to convict them of their sin, right? But sometimes it's wise just to give God's spirit time to work on our spouse. I mean, if you have confidence that your spouse loves Christ and is godly and maybe they're just not having the best day and they're not at their best right now, right? You have days like that, right? There's times when you're not at your best as a wife, as a husband, and so maybe the best thing to do is cut our spouse some slack. I'm not saying let them sin and get away with it, but hopefully you have the confidence that because they've come back to you in, in the past and said, you know what, you know, just give them some time and they'll, they'll kind of get their heart right and they'll come back and they'll make things right. And typically when we confront in the heat of the moment, what does it do? Well, you might as well get the gas can from the garage and pour it on the fire, Right? Because it's just gonna it's gonna escalate, right? And uh, again, this I think this is good. They, they really ultimately God changed her heart here. And I think she was repentant, she was sorry for her actions. And then notice what happens in verse 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Here she is interacting again with her, her girlfriends, if you will. If you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. So she's asking her friends, hey, listen, if you see my husband, relay a message to him. If you see him, please tell him I miss him like crazy. I can't live without him. I'm lovesick for him. To which the daughters of Jerusalem respond, well, what kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us? And so here we've gotten used to these ladies kind of, right, background singers. You go, you go, right? And, and they've been extolling this couple's love, but now it's like, whoa, whoa, time out. It's almost, it's almost like they could be ridiculing this couple now and this gal and say, hey, I thought you said this guy was so awesome. And it doesn't sound like he's so awesome. He stormed off. Why would you want him back? Sometimes girlfriends are the worst people to talk to, ladies, right, when you get sideways with your husband, because they'll all tell you, well, you, don't, you deserve better, right? Punt that guy. He doesn't deserve you. And you begin to believe, right, things like that. And so they're asking her, hey, hey, so, so tell us what's so special about this guy, what sets him apart from all the other men? Why, why should we help you look for him? Why would you want this guy back? Kind of reading into that a little bit. But notice these questions gave the Shulamite an opportunity to praise her husband and describe the, 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 all, that, all that made him desirable to her. And, and she goes on to describe the striking features of her beloved which i think in the process helped rekindle her former feelings for him. Well, let me just read what she says here. Verse 10, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. In other words, he's the best of the best. There's no one like him. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven, black curly hair. His, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and repose. And they're sitting, Boy, well, he's dark, his deep, dark eyes. Oh, man, I like those eyes. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. His abdomen is carved ivory. ivory. Inlaid with sapphires, that means he's got washboard abs. I think that's what that means. Just kidding. Uh, his legs are pillars of alabaster, set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he's wholly desirable. That, this is my beloved, and this is my friend, O oh daughters of Jerusalem. So she, he, she just goes off on how lovely this guy is, how delightful her husband is to her. And, and by the way, this would have been a this would have been a a, a, a perfect opportunity for her to badmouth her husband, to throw her husband under the bus. Which by the way, only makes things worse. And so I think we need to to commit to never say anything negative about our spouses. I'm not saying speak the truth in love. And if, and if there's unresponsiveness, sinful unresponsiveness going on in the home, and they don't respond to your appeals, maybe you need to appeal to a, 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 an outside source a, a pastor, an elder, a disciple, someone, an older, older godly woman, right? Where you can communicate, right, your concerns about your spouse in a loving, respectful, gracious way. But here she, again, just expresses her admiration for him. You know, I tell you what, I'm, I'm so grateful for, for my wife because, uh, you know, there's a verse in Proverbs that talks about, you know, the, the Proverbs 31 woman, how her husband's heart trusts in her. In other words, he's never, he just trusts her. He's never concerned that she's going to say something, right, that's going to put him in a bad light or, you know, she's trustworthy. And I'm so grateful that that I've never known my wife to ever, in in all the years that we've been married, 24, almost 24 years, never have I felt like I had to follow up with her about, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't have said that about me. (laughs) I even joke about it sometimes, like maybe when I've not been at my best, I've been a jerk, and she goes out with an older godly woman and she just happened to have it scheduled, you know, and uh, she comes back home and I said, so what'd you talk about? Did you tell, tell her how, what a big jerk I am? She's like, no. <laughs> I appreciate that about my wife. Praise God, that's the evidence of grace in her life, that she's not quick to throw me under the bus. I don't know that she's ever thrown me under the bus. I'm so grateful for that. But let me ask you this question, okay? Some of you are sitting here, and I could ask you this question. What makes your spouse attractive to you? You're like, you know what, Ken, to be honest, not much right now. (laughs) Well, that's a dangerous place to be. And I would just say something must have attracted to you them at some point or you would have never married them. It's not like you met this guy and you're like, this guy is the biggest jerk I've ever met. I'm going to marry him. And guys, you didn't go, well, this is the ugliest woman I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to marry her. You didn't do that, right? There was something that was very attractive to you about your spouse, and maybe all the conflict and tension and friction that you've been experiencing, unresolved conflict, has has blinded your eyes to all those things. And all you can see is their sin, and you don't see any of their, their positive things. And so I would give you a little homework assignment, if that's you, to, to make a, sit down and make a list of what attracted you to your, to your spouse to begin with. Just just write out a list. What were the things, think back, what were the things that drew your heart to your husband or to your, to your wife to begin with? And then take some time to maybe express your admiration for them. Instead of continually confronting them, pointing out their sin, and saying mean, nasty things to them, why don't you tell them what you're grateful to God for? You know, I'm grateful for the way you look, honey. I'm, I'm grateful for the way you take care of me. I, I'm grateful for the things that you say to me. I'm grateful for the way you sacrifice for me. And again, I, I want to make sure here that we don't miss this in the midst of this um, what seems to be a purely physical admiration of her husband. Commentators, uh, again, argue whether or not these body parts are literal or metaphorical. I mean, is she describing her husband as this hunk, you know, this specimen, this Greek god, tall, dark, and handsome with this perfectly sculpted body? Is that what she's really all excited about? Well, ladies... Right? I think you would agree. you don't care how good-looking a guy is. If he's a jerk, you don't want anything to do with him. And I think for some reason, our society has, has, has um, kind of shifted and that it, it, it makes it look like that all women care about is some hunky-looking guy, right? And, and really, personality m- means nothing. And so, yeah, I think she's expressing how handsome that she thinks he is. But more importantly, I think she's referring to how valuable, how attractive he is to her, how he's golden. He didn't have literally golden legs, right? Golden, you know, he's golden to her. I mean, she's not missing his big guns and washboard abs. I was joking with my kids, like, hey, kids, you know why your mom married me? <laughs> right there. It's reason number one, reason number two, right? Reason number three, right there. Oh, they're like, Dad, come on. That's weird. You're awkward. But notice, what does she miss about them? I love this. Don't miss this. Verse 16, his mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my, I don't hear you, friend. This is my friend. What does she miss the most? His friendship, his companionship. Listen to what the Expositor's Bible commentary says. It says, The song Song of songs is unabashedly erotic, yet it is never satisfied to be content with the physical alone. A normal person finds the erotic ultimately meaningful only if there is trust and commitment, delight in the other's person as well as in the body. Our hero is her lover, but he is more than that. He is her friend. Can I hear an amen from the ladies? That's what you want, isn't it? You want a friend. Well, notice... what happens next the the daughters of jerusalem chime back in where has your beloved gone o most beautiful among women where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you they're like okay we're convinced we'll, we'll help you find this guy he's a good guy after all he's not a, as, as big of a jerk as he looks like or you you know you could make him out to be we'll help you and so they're impressed at her genuine love for him and uh, they want to help her look for her beloved and, and help them get back right with each other. Those are good friends, right, that, that you run to when maybe things don't go well in your marriage and, and, and you maybe even start to um, bemoan your marriage and say bad things about your husband and, and, and good godly friends will say, whoa, whoa, time out, sister. <laughs> I don't want to hear any of this, okay? Um, I want to help you get right with um, with your husband. So, what can we do about that? How can I help with that? I'm not here just to let you vent, right? Uh, I want I want to help you be reconciled. I love that story of the of the um, daughter who got married, and uh, it probably several weeks after the. The honeymoon, they came back home, her and her new husband, and they got into this major knockdown, drag out, not literally fight. And so she was all hurt and didn't know what to do, and so she got on the phone and she called her dad. And she was like, Dad, I want to come home. And he's like, Hun, you are home. Right? Push him back, say, Hey, no, no, you are home. What can I do to help you work this out? And so here's her, her friends trying to help her now. And then she says, in verse 2, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture his flock in the gardens uh, and gather lilies. You're like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Didn't we just talk about gardens and lilies sometime recently, right? And that was back in, in, in chapter 4. Verses twelve through fifteen, where he describes right his darling, the beloved describes his darling, the man describes his his wife as as uh, as this garden that he was looking forward to spending time in, lots of time in, and so chapter 5 verse 1 I have come into my garden my sister my bride I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey I have drunk my wine and my milk eat friends drink and abide deeply O lovers again just the the context here right that she herself is the garden It's 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 a reference to her body and so I think this can only mean that he's returned to her that they've been what reconciled, We're like, well, where did that happen? White space, you got to love the white space in the song of Solomon, right? We see that there's a reunion here this is this is some something special's going on here. And so I think we see this relationship restored, there's a reunion, there's they're, they're they're reunited. They're restored, um, not just mentally, not just emotionally, but physically. And so here we we, we really see the, um, the, the conclusion here is this emotional and physical intimacy. Look at verse three. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He who pastures his flock among the lilies. This is one of the theme verses. She's already said this in, in chapter two. At verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. Notice that's reversed. It may not mean anything, but it may mean that she got her focus back on him rather than off herself, right? Maybe her focus was on her. Now she's putting him first, potentially. And so the separation here was short lived. Why? What brought, back, brought them back together again? What, what, what drove them apart? What do we say? Selfishness. So, what brought them back together? selflessness, selflessness, self-denial, self-sacrifice. Which, by the way, Jesus was the epitome of all those things, was he not? Philippians chapter 2 talks about the kenosis, how even though he was God, he came to earth in the form of a man and humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a, what, cross. By the way, that's the follow-up to do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. Then the very next line is have the same attitude as Christ, Jesus, who, being in the form of God, didn't consider equality of God. with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, right, and took on the form of a man. He came to earth and he died, not even just died, he died on a cross ultimate example of selflessness, humility, self-denial, self-sacrifice. And a commentator made this comment. Well put, he said, your marriage should look like a crucifixion where both husband and wife can say, God has given me a lover who preaches to me every day the gospel. A spouse who sings to me the story of salvation, of God having reconciled selfish sinners through his selfless son. Deny self, he says, because it will help your marriage and because it mirrors the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that the world so desperately needs to see. And guess what? We get to show them the gospel when we forgive one another, right? And again, we're we're not... Sure, where, or what transpired here in the white spaces, right, somewhere between, you know, chapter 6, verse 1 and chapter 2, but they're all like, hey, where do we find this guy? We'll help you. And well, he's right here. He's already back. Call, out, call off the dogs, right? Um, you don't need to go out on a, on a hunt. He's, he's already come home. And they're enjoying one another again. I would assume somewhere in that white space, there was a, hey honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I forgive you. If that doesn't happen, that's that's the key, right? I was wrong. (laughs) Would you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you, and then there's reconciliation, and so we don't we don't hear that, but we see the results of reconciliation. We see the start of passionate kissing here, and and, and renewal of vows, and and, and and we'll see this next time. But in verses four through nine, uh, he goes back to repeating some of the same praises he had given her on her we, on the wedding night, praising her what her beauty and. And all those things. And so what is he doing? He's reaffirming his love for her. He's reassuring her that his love has not diminished since that first night. In fact, it's only increased. And listen, if you're married, you get this. You've been there. You've done this. You've experienced this in your marriage. That after the fight is over and the dust settles, right, and the smoke is cleared, you understand each other better, right? And you feel closer and you feel more committed to each other than ever before. And it's crazy that, that, that marital conflict not only strengthens our relationship with God, it also strengthens our relationship with our spouse. It increases our dependence on God and, and it increases our delight in our spouse. Listen, there is nothing I hate more than when I feel out of fellowship with Kelly. And that's the worst thing that happens to me. When, I, when I'm out of, except for being out of fellowship with God, right? That's obviously number one. But second only to being out of fellowship with God, it's being out of fellowship with my wife. When there's something, I just feel there's something between us. But there's nothing I love more than when we get right with each other. I mean, that's the best, isn't it? And sometimes when you're in the midst of the battle, you're not sure how this thing's going to get resolved. And and there have been moments when, I mean, our last resort, when we had talked this thing into the ground, right, and we were making no headway whatsoever, there was no end in sight, we fell on our knees by our bed and started to pray. And you begin to pray, and I'm glad you're not there to hear what some of my prayers have been. <laughs> Because I'm pretty angry. Not at Kelly as much as I'm at God. And I'll, t- I'll tell him that. I'll say, Lord, I'm not happy right now. And you know that. I'm angry. And there's a lot of things I want to say to my wife right now. In fact, I don't even want to be in this room with her right now. And right, I mean, you, sometimes you get that, right, in your heart. And it's like, are you kidding me? How can your heart get that riled up against your lover? And so you, you cry out to God and you, you, you be honest with him about how angry and how hurt you are, and, and you ask him to forgive you, and then you ask each other to forgive you. And it's just amazing how God uses prayer to soften your heart and to reunite your hearts. And, and how when you're, when you're in a fight with your spouse, they're, they're the ugliest, most undesirable person, right? But after you make up, it's like they're more attractive to you than ever and you desire them more than you ever desired them before. And you go from not wanting to be in the same room with them to wanting to be in bed with them. It's like, what just happened there? And I've told Kelly this, when my heart is right with her, she is the, the prettiest thing on two legs. That's, that's just, when your heart's right with, your, with God and with your spouse, it's, it's, everything else is right. Some of you may remember a, a, a woman by the name of Peg Bookomer. Anybody remember Peg Bookemer? Yeah, some of our older saints here are those who have been here from day one. She, she was and continues to be the oldest member in the history of our church. Um, she was, I think, 96 when she finally died. And uh, she came from a, a Scottish Presbyterian background, and so we, we hit it off very like-minded. And I'll, just, I'll never forget the first day we started Lakeside at, 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 at the elementary school, down at Montgomery Elementary School. And we're setting up chairs and everything, wondering who was going to show up and, and, and thinking it's just going to be more the young folks and, you know, that people maybe that can relate to a younger pastor like me. And, and, and then all of a sudden I turn around and in Hobble's peg Booker with her Bible under her arm, like just just kind of comes in, you know, struggling to make it in the door. And I'm like, Peg, what in the world are you doing here? And she looked me in the eye and she says, you preach the word and that's what I want. And then she said this, and I want you to preach at my funeral. <laughs> so it's the second thing she said, and I want you to preach at my funeral. Apparently she knew she was getting ready to go. <laughs> she wanted to stick close. And in the providence of God, guess what? Her funeral was the very first service that we had in this sanctuary. We were supposed to open the doors on a Sunday. She died that week. And that Saturday, we decided, you know what? We don't care. We're not going to, oh, no, we have to save the inaugural service. You know, that would just be like a bad omen to have the first service in your church be a funeral. In fact, somebody asked me, "You, you did what? That was the first service you ever had in your church was a funeral? I said, absolutely. And it was only right because this woman, all she wanted to do, she couldn't wait. She wanted to live until that first Sunday in our new building. Because she prayed, she gave, she she wanted to be a part of that. Well, guess what? She, she inaugurated the building in her memorial service. It was beautiful. And so before she died, I would visit her from time to time, and uh, I'll never forget one conversation that we had before she died. And I was there sitting on the couch with her in her kid's house where she was living at the time, and... And she was just kind of talking about her husband. Now, what was strange about this is that she was a widow longer than she was married. That she had lost her husband early on in their marriage, and she was a widow longer than she was married. And she never got remarried, never wanted to get remarried. And so she talked about her husband to me as if he had just died yesterday. And how much fun they had together, and and just what, just how they enjoyed each other's company, and 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 she just was going off about uh, her husband. And 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 I just I said, you know what, Peg? I said I hope that Kelly and I will be like that someday because you know sometimes it seems like we get sideways with each other a lot. And she stopped me. She said, Oh, Ken, we used to fight like cats and dogs. And then she, I'll never forget, she kind of scooched up on the couch and she put her hand on my knee and she says, but making up was fun. (laughs) Oh, that was precious, precious. And so I think a realistic view of marriage is, is one where God uses the process of having to work through conflicts and frustrations and difficulties in order to make us more like Jesus to sanctify us. Yes, God intended marriage to make us happy, to be a blessing, but he ultimately designed marriage to make us, what? Holy. And, I, and I, I, it's so sad to me when I have uh, the opportunity to talk with someone who, 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 who wants to get a divorce, and I'll say, well, why do you want to get a divorce? And typically, this is what I hear, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And I know God wants me to be happy. I'm like, have you forgotten? He also wants you to be holy. (laughs) And so what you're telling me is that your happiness is more important than your holiness. You want to be happy more than you want to be holy. And have you considered the fact that you're trying to get out from the very trial that God has ordained in your life to make you more like him? Maybe for some it's cancer. Maybe it's for some it's a wayward child. Maybe for some it's a it's a it's a it's a financial difficulty. It's, it's losing your job. It's maybe for some it's a maybe for you it's a difficult marriage. And it's sad when they're like, you know what? I, I'm I'm not willing to go through the refiner's fire. That's the, they don't say it that way, but that's what they're saying. I want out. In other words, I'm I'm getting off the conveyor. I'm not going through this refiner's fire. I'm out of here. And I think we all expect to live happily ever after, right? I think we all, when we're we're at their wedding, we're we're there standing, right, looking into the eyes of our beloved and our darling and we're saying our vows and we all expect, right, to live happily ever after. But I think we also expect to live effortlessly ever after. As if it's going to be easy. And we all stood... Before God, at some point, if you're married, and we promised our spouse to remain faithful to them for better or for worse, right? for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and in joy and in sorrow, when you come home late (laughs) and forget to call, when you say mean things to me and you do things to me that hurt my feelings... You fill in the blank, right? For as long as we both shall live. There's a song I have in my iPod that every once in a while when Kel and I maybe get sideways with one another, get get kind of, there's some friction and that something's between us and uh, maybe I'm being tempted to be bitter or angry and I'll throw this song on and I'll listen to it. And it helps. Put everything back into perspective. And so I want us to listen to this song. It's a song that I'm sure you've heard before. It's called Love is Not a Fight. And uh, let's just listen to it and hopefully it'll encourage your heart tonight.
1: Love is not a play The house we enter in.
0: song, huh? A love worth fighting for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example of this couple in your word who got sideways with one another, but by your grace worked things out. And uh, we thank you that Jesus is our example. Whenever we are feeling selfish and prideful, and uh, Lord, we need to learn to be humble and selfless and and deny ourselves. And I just thank you that you've given us uh, someone who not only exemplifies how to do that and what that looks like, but also empowers us to do that. And so we ask that with Christ's strength that you would help us to continue to fight for our marriages, and the Lord, that we would be committed to Christ and committed to our spouse for your honor and glory, that we would be a picture of the gospel to this lost and dying world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.